Hey, good morning. Before I share with you uh, a message that's focused on why we've been, as a church, serious about reaching the next generation for Christ, I, uh, I just really feel like we should pray for the families of Afghanistan. You know, I don't, I don't know that that country is unique in terms of families trying to keep their kids alive. But, and I don't know about you, but I've been slapped in the face with imagery that will haunt me for the rest of my life. If I get on a jet and go over there and rescue those kids, I would, and so would you. But we can't. But there's power in prayer. So let's pray. Father God, you are mighty and holy and powerful and more powerful than the worst evil on the world. More powerful than Satan. And the imagery we've seen in our lifetime, not just in the last week or two, is straight from the pits of hell. And it's one thing when it comes against adults, something else when it comes against kids. And we know your heart breaks, even way more than ours. We know that. So we pray for protection of the children and the parents of Afghanistan. And some of us can see in our mind's eye, I know I can, a particular kid. I don't know who that kid is, but you do. You number the hairs on our head. And so would you physically save and protect the kids in harm's way in Afghanistan and elsewhere around the world? In the south side of Chicago, where I spent a year. God, protect them and be with the church and give them courage in the days ahead. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, I want to share with you uh, my, one of my favorite stories of all time. And it's about a 17-year-old girl that God used to change the world. It was 1878, and a young 15-year-old kid named Eliza Shirley and her mom and her dad, Annie and Amos, in Coventry, England, walked into a crusade, like a rally, like a Christian crusade rally that had some very close ties to William Booth, who began the Salvation Army in England. <clears throat> and what Eliza heard that night at age 15 changed her life, the whole trajectory. It actually changed the world, and certainly what happened eventually here in America. She said later that that night, listening to the gospel, she said, I felt the deepest spiritual yearning my soul had ever felt. Within a year, with her parents' blessing, and, and her, Eliza's parents were, were solid Christians, super involved in a church, a local church, she got to meet William Booth. And Booth recognized immediately a gift and sent her into ministry opportunity, preaching, a 16-year-old 
high school age girl preaching, and she lit it up. She like lit it up. God had given her a gift and a solid foundation with her parents, and a foundation through William Booth and others recognizing the gift, and people were coming to Christ at crusade rallies. It was like Eliza Shirley slash Billy Graham. Within a year. And then within another year, at age 17, Eliza began to get a gnawing in her heart. She had seen the power of God using William Booth and, and the Salvation Army in England. And her father had moved to Philadelphia, to America, and had been writing back about the problems here in America in the late 1800s. And so she had this gnawing in her heart that could God use me <clears throat> to bring what she had seen in England to America. And so she shared that vision with William Booth. And he looked at her, and I mean, nobody was a bigger fan of Eliza Shirley at age 17 than William Booth. And he said, no, no. William Booth, and Eliza knew this, for a couple of years, William Booth had the same vision to take what had been very successful in reaching inner city people with major addictions and problems through the Salvation Army, he had the same vision to bring it to America. And he tried. And he sent big shot pastor after big shot pastor, trained, seminary trained, great track record, great resume and pedigree over to America to give it a shot. And they failed, and they failed, and they failed. So in the back of William Booth's mind was, if these guys failed, what chance, as gifted as she may be, I'm not going to send her into harm's way. But Eliza Shirley was relentless, which was one of her hallmarks. And she finally won the day with William Booth. And he said to her, <laughs> he said, you have my blessing begrudgingly, but I'm not going to pay for it. And you sure better take your mother with you. And so Annie and Eliza age 17, get on a ship, set sail to join Amos in Philly. And what happened next could have only happened from God. And it's written up in a great little biography. I've been passing these out to high school kids, girls and boys, but especially girls, for years. I, I've bought as many of these as I can. The Girl Who Invaded America. Um, first come, first serve uh, there's a little stack of them over here if you want to grab one, especially if you have a kid that would like to give this a summer read as summer closes out. Anyway, she and her mom start preaching on a street corner in downtown Philly. And it went from bad to worse to dangerous. I mean, she's getting stuff thrown at her, uh, curse words, making fun of, it was bad, it was dangerous, and nothing happened. But she and her mom and her dad were relentless, and they kept at it. And the Holy Spirit was relentless. Fast forward over time, read her biography, and she is attributed for having planted the Salvation Army. Philadelphia is not only the birthplace of America, it's the birthplace of the Salvation Army. And there is a place in the shadow of City Hall, if you know Philly, and I know it well. We've been taking our junior high kids down there forever. 
We have a strong connection to the Salvation Army in Philadelphia through our junior high kids in our ministry here. There is the Eliza Shirley house. And it's last stop on the bus. You either sleep outside on a park bench or you go to the Eliza Shirley house. That's the first intake into quite a sophisticated ministry by the Salvation Army. Something, and here's the point of that story and why I love it. Something powerful happens when parents and the church join together in, and we're going to run with the theme that Jeff's kicked his ministry off here with, when parents and the church, and I'll throw grandparents in there, go on a dance of discipleship together. When parents and the church and grandparents come together to create a safe place for kids to explore what it might mean to give their lives to Christ, to be discipled into a deeper relationship with Him, given an opportunity to explore their gifts and to try and to fail and to try again, to discover a vision for one of the fundamental questions for us all, let alone when you're 16, why am I here? You know? It's one of the three main questions that we all ask, but especially think back for those of you when you were 16, what is my life all about? What is, what is my purpose here on this planet? The dance of parents and the church has great effect. And we've discovered that here over the decades, long before I ever came on the scene. We discovered what the psalmist captures so well when he writes, people... Tell the coming generation about God's glorious deeds and his might. About the wonders that he has done so that the next generation might know him. And then one day, arise and tell their children also. Now, zero pride in this. And I'm speaking for us all. We collectively should and do have no pride and what I'm about to say. But God has done that here. God has brought that passage together here. We've seen stories like Eliza Shirley again and again and again. Maybe not that well-known, maybe not that dramatic, but we have seen that again and again and again. Right here in the Northeast, where there are more Teenagers per square mile than anywhere else in America. Until Amy and I moved to Philly 35 years ago, um, I had never set foot east of Chicago. Never. Not even, not even in an airport for a moment. Never been east of Chicago. I didn't even know that Philly was south of New York. I didn't even know where it was on the map when God was calling us there from California. And... And so I'm not originally from here. And one of the things that surprised me the most was the other thing I'm going to observe about our area. You have the most teenagers per square mile right here where you're sitting in that chair and the least amount of effective youth ministry. Now, how could that be? How could you have the most potential and the least effect? How could that be? I've been here for 31 years, October 1st, and I still don't get it. 
I mean, I've done ministry in California. There's a cook and youth ministry on every street corner in California where I started out in Fresno, Minnesota, Ohio. I, I mean, go anywhere. How could it be that we have the biggest target population here of students and the least amount of effective youth ministry, church after church after church. And we, we don't have a lot of kids in this area. We have a zillion churches. And, I mean, I've, I've observed it. And again, there's no pride in this. There's no criticism intended in this of, of anyone or any church. But I still don't get it. But the fact is, God has been, which is one of the reasons Amy and I have stuck around here for 31 years, in an occupation where the average stay of a youth pastor is less than two. You know what I mean? You guys would have had three youth pastors by now. You know what I'm saying? Hi, my name is Mike. Uh, see ya. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and there's no pride in that. The reason we stuck around is because from the very get-go, um, God made it clear that this was it. This is where he wanted us. This is the last place. Amy and I were all set to go and pastor a church in Minnesota or California again. And God made it very clear, no, here. And, and the reason is, is because you and us have taken this, and the students have taken this serious over the years. And look what's happened. And I believe the best is yet to come. Now, to kind of get under the skin a bit of what it means for the church and for parents and grandparents to go on a dance together, for, to, to build a seedbed, a foundation for students to live into their, their call, created calling and for their life. I want to look at two of my favorite scripture passages. Jeff and I went out for lunch this week, and I go, Jeff, I don't know if I'm going to pick A or B, A or B, and I ended up picking A and B. So I'm going to skate through this super quick. These are my two favorite scriptural examples of what it means for parents and the church to go on a dance together for the, for the kingdom, you know? The first one, and, and grab your Bible, your Bible app, whatever the case may be. I hope you bring a Bible and, and take some notes. Um, but the first one is found in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. It's a story, it's a familiar story. You know this story if you've been around Sunday school any amount of time. It's a story of Hannah and her husband Elkanah, their son, eventual son Samuel, which 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel references, of course, and a priest, a minister, a high priest. So he's a big deal, Eli. Now, Hannah, you know the story, could not bear children. And Elkanah, you know, it was a weird deal back in the day, but had two wives. Go figure. And one of them, the other one, I forget her name, could have kids, but Hannah, his favored couldn't. And it ripped her to shreds. She, she was beyond disappointment. That's not even the word to gather what capture what was going on in her heart. There was shame involved in this as well. It was awful. It was agony. It was agony. And so Hannah, being a great woman of prayer, and you get that flavor of her big time, um, she's quite remarkable. Acquaint yourself with Hannah. She's one of the superstars of scripture in so many ways, but very understated, but relentless. And so she prayed and she prayed. She didn't give up. She didn't give up, despite the disappointment, shame, all the rest. So one day, she goes and sits in front of her 
church. It would be like someone, a woman, known by the minister, Colleen, me, Jeff, we, we know her, elders, we, we know this woman, and she's sitting in the front of our church out here in front of those doors, crying, screaming out to God, wailing. And the scripture literally says she's just in a prayer frenzy in her, she's not even at, sometimes just her mouth is moving and she's, she's not even uttering noises. And the priest, the minister, comes by, he knows her, he, he knows her story, and he goes, and it's in the morning, and he goes, woman, what are you doing here in front of the church, drunk, at this time of the morning? Well, that's not good pastoral care, you know what I'm saying? And she goes, sir, I'm not drunk. I'm crying out to God for a child here. I'm crying out to God for a child. Well, of course, you know what happened. God blessed her with a child, and not just any child. It's questionable. I mean, God could have figured out another way to pull it off, but it's questionable that you would even be sitting here right now if not for her firstborn son and how all this goes down. So this is most consequential. And God knew that. The father knew that. He was setting in motion some things of building a framework and a foundation on which young Samuel would grow. Well, after a while, with this young boy, Hannah goes to her husband, Elkanah. And there's not much about him, but he seems cool. He seems, he seems dialed in. This seems like a solid marriage in that cultural context. And he affirms her, and he goes to her husband, and he says, after the boy, after Samuel's weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. And so it wasn't right after he was weaned. It would, most Bible scholars think around age 11, which is still super young. Um, she gathers him up with some sacrificial things, and Elkanah goes with her. And they go to the temple back to Eli, the priest. Now, Eli not only misfired with her, didn't recognize a woman in pain. Eli had all kinds of issues. His son's... One version, uh, I think it's actually the NIV, says his sons were scoundrels. So here I am in 2021 calling Eli's sons scoundrels. So it, it was very well known. I won't even get into what those guys were doing. It was bad. And scripture tells about it in there. And so Eli is not exactly maybe the best pastoral influence on the planet. But Hannah is trusting God, not Eli here. You know what I'm saying? The ball's in the parents' court. And that is a fundamental principle always. If you're a parent, even if your kids are grown, if you're a grandparent, the, the spiritual welfare of your kid is in your court, not the church's. But the church is willing to come along and do a dance with you. And Amy and I experienced that in our own now grown kids. We couldn't have done it on our own. I mean, we would have tried, but no way would, would Andrew and Emily be who they are today without the influence of many of you and others who have been here along the way. So God used Eli, despite his ineptitude, 
to go deep into a relationship with the Lord. And up to Eli comes Hannah, and she says this, Pardon me, sir, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he, Scripture says, Samuel, at age 11, worshiped the Lord there. There's a number of references along the way of, of Samuel's dedication to God and to, to being a servant, not only to the Lord, but to the priest Eli. In fact, this phrase is in there a few times. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. Samuel's life went on to change the course of of history, as God used him to help usher in an era of kings who were the predecessor of the ultimate king of kings. And how did that happen? How did God prepare Samuel for what would lie ahead? It started with his parents, Hannah and Elkanah, people of prayer, people of persistence, and ultimate obedience. And he also used what was symbolic of the church of the time with Eli, parents and the church coming together, dancing together to create a foundation for the Lord to do in Samuel's life what he had always intended when he knit him together in his mother's womb. And can you imagine the joy in Hannah and Elkanah's heart watching what transpired in Samuel's life throughout his lifetime? Getting to see God have his way. Reread, it'll just bring you um, peace and joy to reread uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's wonderful song. She says at the beginning, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in you. I delight in your deliverance. That song goes on beautifully from there. Man, how often... Over the last 40 years, I've thought, I wish this kid's parents could see what she's doing right now on a mission trip, up front speaking on a Sunday night. I wish this kid's parents could see what he's stepping up courageously and doing now. I, I wish parents could be flies on the wall so often. And you've heard me say time and time again, where I have thought through the years that the most sacred spot on our property here isn't the sanctuary, it's this parking lot, where for 31 years here, I've watched parents hold their kids' hands and give them to God, just like Hannah did at age 11. You're going to Mexico, you're going to Tijuana, Mexico, and then once a parent makes sure the I's are dotted, and the T's are crossed, and God is in this, and the church is behind it. Yes, I've watched them do that. I've done that. You, many of you have done that. It takes guts, and it takes trust and faith in the Lord. Story two. Some of you have been around me a while. You've heard me unpack this, so I'm going to skate through this quick. 2 Timothy 1, 1 to 7. It just doesn't get any better than this. Why would we as a church invest so much 
effort and resources and everything else in student ministry. The Second Timothy 1, 1 to 7, captures it so well. Let me read it to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus Christ our Lord, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, Timothy, I continue, continually remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears as I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, I've seen it with my own eyes, now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then this. This is the goal if a student is not living into, if our just graduated seniors, who most of which are now entering into their freshman year, Christian young men and women, if you guys are not living in to verse 7 of 2 Timothy 1, you're in great jeopardy. And the beauty of this is that Paul does not say you need to be this, you need to attain this, you better get serious about this. He says they're gifts. Embrace the gift. These are gifts. Embrace the gifts. Understand the gifts and embrace them. For the spirit, for the spirit God gave us and gave you, Timothy, does, is not one of timidity, not one of getting like pushed around uh, by culture, by the winds of whateverness, by your friends. You are not a wimp. You are not, you are not vulnerable to the point that you can't stand firm, but rather God gives us the spirit of power, love, and self-control. And I've challenged <clears throat> parents, and I'll challenge you, name me a fourth. There isn't one. Name me a fourth. And the other thing about that list of power, love, and self-control, any one of them in isolation is dangerous. Two is inadequate. Three, and God will use you to change the world. And I've seen it. I've seen it. If students have been discipled and equipped by their parents and prayed over by their grandparents and discipled in this church, have gone out and God has used them and continues to use them to change the world. I love this passage. And the fact that Paul starts reminding Timothy, it's like he says, hey, you know who the finest Christian people I've ever met? He knew Timothy really well. He knew his mom. He knew his grandma. He knew his dad and his grandpa, too. And the jury's out on where dad and grandpa are here. Some think they're, they passed away. Um, they're, they're, I, there's no consensus of where. They're, dad's mentioned a couple of times, but not much. So, But the point here isn't so much that. It is... It's like Paul saying, don't look at me if you want a role model. Look at your mom and your grandma. They are the finest Christian women, followers of Jesus I have ever known, Timothy. And you, you reflect them, and you should reflect them. 
your mom, your grandma. And then he goes on to talk about himself, and that is symbolic of the church. Dude, I, I prayed for you. I continue to pray for you. I laid my hands on you on behalf of the elders of the church because I saw a gift in you, and I am with you. I got your back. Church has your back. Students here, by the way, know that. They know that. I ask students all the time, especially like freshmen, we're going through confirmation or whatever, for the kids that are sons and daughters of this church, you know, half of our students, this isn't their home church, and we support that. But for those that are, I'll go, what is it like to come down here? And again and again and again, they go, it feels like I'm, I'm walking into my second home. That is what they, that's what they always say. And think about your childhood church. Did that feel like, and again, there's no pride in this. It just is, you know? Timothy's mom and grandma, Paul representing the church, encouraging Timothy, because our students have a stake in this too, to fan into flame. He doesn't say, I'm fanning into flame for you. You need to make this decision. You can turn your back on the whole thing here, Timothy. And I know it's not easy, because you're only 17, and you're already a very <clears throat> pressure-packed, influential pastor here, Timothy. So I know this isn't easy. It's a lot to put on you at 17. But you need to be serious about this, and you need to be intentional about fanning into flame what God has given you. Um, God has called up over the years uh, high school seniors to step into ministry. I could never hang on to seniors. It's because I treated them forever like fourth-year high school kids. And when we stopped treating high school seniors like fourth-year high school kids that had one foot in and one foot out and were sick of it, um, when we raise the bar, and I keep raising the bar on the intake higher and higher and higher, it's a privilege to step into ministry. Nobody deserves it. Um, I, I've thought at times, like, no high school senior is going to step over this bar. And we hold them accountable. I've asked a few, sadly, not recently, but to not be a senior intern anymore. I had a student once sit in my office and say, if you don't fire me, I'll fire myself because I didn't live up to what you expected. And I go, hey, man, I love you. You can stay in the ministry. But yeah, right, uh, leadership, ministry is a privilege. It's not a right. And I respect you for being honest here. You know what I'm saying? But to, but to watch God's call in their life backed up by parents, me, their salt leader, and to step in, these three are, are doing that now over here, and I appreciate you guys because I know you mean it. This is no honorary thing. This church gives senior interns a college scholarship. It's not about the money, but that holds a higher accountability level on things. It's been a beautiful thing through the years to watch young people step into God's call on their life and to live out in real time God's gift of power of love and self-control. I don't have time to unpack those three words, but they are packed full of meaning. The original Greek of power, dunamis, love, agape, and self-control. And by the way, I will say this about self-control. The best definition I ever heard of self-control is the willingness to say yes when you'd much rather say no. And the willingness to say no when you far would rather say yes. 
And we are not animals. <clears throat> We're human beings. And we are able to do that. So what is it? What is it that will create a seed bread for the next generation? What should the dance of parents in the church look like? What are some, some kind of um, themes that come out of both these stories as I close? They're this, and I'm just going to rattle them off. Maybe I'll put all my notes up uh, somewhere if you want to read my whole message. They're this. Both in the story of Hannah and Elkanah and the story of Paul with Timothy. Prayer, a presence of, of modeling. A noted Christian author once said this when asked, what was the biggest spiritual influence of your life? And he said, the thing that impacted my faith more than any sermon, more than any book, more than any event, was catching my grandpa in prayer on his knees. He goes, that impacted me more than anything. Prayer, presence in kids' lives, a willingness to pay the price, and it's way more than monetary. One of my Mikeisms over the years has been all churches want kids in their building and in their ministry, but few are willing to pay the price. Listen to me. You have paid the price. I can, I've been wanting to say this, and I've never actually said this. I was going to wait till whatever, but I'll say it now. I can never remember once in 31 years uh, for the leadership of this church saying, Mike, really? Like, no? Like, what? Like, that's too risky, right, Dave? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Never once. Most churches put a way higher value on their sweet carpet than, and, and listen to me, youth, you know this, youth ministry is messy, literally, if not emotionally and other ways. Prayer, presence, paying the price, prioritizing, keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing here. It's not all the other things we could get involved in related to youth ministry. It's discipleship and evangelism. Youth ministry is a bicycle, and there is no other wheel. That's it. I get asked all the time, uh, can you have your kids? Can I come speak? Can we do this? Blah, blah, blah. From outside people a lot of times, not even inside. And I go, no, God bless you, thank you, but that's, we, no, sorry. It's discipleship and evangelism. That's what it is. We're not playing games. And then finally, persistence. Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. And we need to not give up. And whether you're here with me this morning or watching on the internet, um, I know enough to know that there's some whose kids are far, far away from where you wish they would be, either spiritually, emotionally, relationally. I know that. There's power in prayer. Don't give up. Another Mikeism is, and maybe this is youism. It's not over till it's over, and it ain't over. You know what I'm saying? God knows what He's doing, and that's not just some pipe dream. He is powerful. And verses like this, we must cling to Romans 15:13. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope, a double shot of hope. And may that be for you. And so parents and church, let's continue on the dance. The kids might come to know Christ. They might be discipled into a deep relationship with him. That they might discover their gifts and have the courage to step into them even before they leave us here to go off on the next journey. And may we never give up. Real quick in closing. And there is a clock in the back that says I've gone 11 minutes over. So thank you. Um, it's this. The year was 1994. And uh, we had our, our group, our high school group, down at DCLA. You guys were the, there, weren't you, in 94? And um, it was back in the high water mark of this giant evangelism conference for high school students. There were over 10,000 high school kids there. It was one evening at one of the presentations and our group, we got back in a little bit late. We're sitting all the way in the back of the auditorium. We knew that uh, the preacher that night was going to give an altar call and I was, had volunteered to be one of the counselors. He gives the altar call. I get up. I'm all the way in the back of the auditorium. I'm walking um, through an ocean of high school students. 10,000 high school kids and it's the only time I audibly in my head and heart heard the voice of God. And here's what he said. Here's what he said. He said, look around, Mike. And I, I, we had been here about four years at the time. And things were not going real well church-wise back in the early 90s. I'll just say that. I mean, I'll just say that. He said, look around. This is what I've called you to. Stop looking for other jobs. Student ministry is what I've called you to. I never aspired to that. That's the last thing I ever thought I would actually do. I'd never been in one in my life ever. Stop looking for other positions. And then he went on to say, and New Providence is it. It was all a setup for New Providence. California, Minnesota, Philly. It was all set up for this. And he goes, stay. And I'll raise up an army to replace you. I mean, it was, it was just that real, like I'm saying it now. It was so real. I pulled the kids under a tree I don't know if you remember it. The next morning, it was a worship service in D.C., and I told him what I just said to you. And I go, I don't know what that means, and I certainly don't think it's going to take a whole bunch of you guys to replace me. Um, but I left it at that. And here's a picture, I think, a photo of not that exact group, um, but a majority of these kids were there under that tree with me. And up there now is a couple of people that are now with Jesus, um, college professor, and Dave and Mindy, are you in there? Yes. And me with darker hair. Um, but the second person on, from the left on the uh, back row is our new senior pastor. And when it occurred to me that when I found out he was in the running towards the end, I called Jeff and I said, were you under that tree? And he said, yes. And he goes, I never forgot it. Now, was God telling me that one day one of the kids of this church was, was going to become senior parent? No, wasn't that specific. But he was telling me, um, and it has come to pass, and you know this, that 
all over America, all over the world, there are hundreds if not thousands of students who have come through this place who are either in professional ministry or otherwise. And so may we continue on the journey together. And may God continue to raise up hundreds, if not thousands, of Jeff Lees and Tim Pearsons and Rick Huttons and Heather Clarks and Claire Teagues and Chris Voorheeses and Tom Hansons who have answered God's call on their lives and looked back at us. And by the way, one of those names I rattled off, and it wasn't Jeff, was a person who actually, it was Tim Pearson, was up visiting, and some of you know him, and he was a chap, chaplain up until recently of the Washington National baseball team. And he started recounting what this church meant to him, what you meant to him. So may God be with us in the days ahead. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for what has been, and we give you what will be in Christ's name. Amen.